I'm Jennifer Roach, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. You know, we don't often cover current events, but we're going to do that today with Jennifer Roach. She's a very interesting person in that she's been a former Anglican priest who converted to the LDS Church. How does that work? We'll also talk about the recent case, uh, the AP article about the church helpline that's supposed to help bishops uh, when they deal with abuse victims and that sort of a thing. Could they do things a little bit better? We'll talk to Jennifer about that. She's actually a licensed counselor and, uh, and has her own experience with sexual abuse. Unfortunately, she was a victim um, back in California. So she'll talk a little bit about that and about the current situation. She's definitely got some unique perspectives, uh, both as a counselor and as an abuse victim. And so you'll definitely want to check this out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have an amazing woman here on our show. She's a former pastor and now a Mormon. Can we still say Mormon? (laughs) So why don't you tell us who you are? I am Jennifer Roach. I am licensed mental health counselor. Before I joined this church, it's true, I was ordained as an Anglican pastor I have a master in divinity. I also have a master's in counseling or therapy. Okay. Well, this is great. Now, I've heard your story before, but sure. I'm sure most of my audience has not. Mm-hmm. So, um, so tell us about, so Anglican and Episcopal, those are kind of the same thing? They're, they're very close cousins. And so, um, which one's the more conservative? Anglican. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm surprised to hear that. Anglicans in the United States are more conservative than Episcopalians in the United States by far, but Anglicans in the United States are probably more liberal than Anglicans like in Africa. Okay, because they allow women pastors. <laughs> they, they do. It's contentious in some circles still, but they do, yeah. <laughs> okay, and then because uh, the other... So it seems like when I... This is my American history mm-hmm. hat. When the Anglican Church was founded by King Henry VIII, right? Mm-hmm. And then during the Revolution, we didn't want to be tied with the Church of England. Correct. And so they so changed they the changed name to Episcopalian. Episcopal. Mm-hmm. But, um, so in America, it was known as the Episcopal Church, but in England, it was known as the Anglican Church. Correct. And then it was John Wesley and his brother and others who, they were Anglicans, right around that time when the name changed and they kind of say like we need to be these circuit riding preachers we need to take the gospel like out to the people and that's not how anglicans normally are thinking oh, right so this is like the second great awakening uh yeah and so so john john wesley comes out of the anglican church at this time saying like y'all need to be doing more to get get the gospel to the people we're starting our own thing oh wow there you go well very cool mm-hmm. and so Eventually, we won the war. We did. <laughs> I can report that as of today. <laughs> and so Anglicans aren't terrible anymore? I mean, there's still kind of a division between Anglicans and Episcopal, right? Yeah. So in the United States, people who call themselves Anglicans and not Episcopal have deliberately walked away from the Episcopalian structure, in part because they will say things like, oh, we don't actually know if Jesus was a real person. 
So that's what Episcopals say. Yeah, not all of them. Right. Many, many of them love Jesus and they're fine. But you also get a lot of that kind of stuff on the leadership. So people who call themselves Anglicans in the U.S. searched out. They call them flying bishops, but basically they're foreign bishops who would oversee them. So when I was an Anglican, my top bishop was actually the Archbishop of Rwanda, um, who was a, a welcoming refuge for American Episcopalians who wanted to break away from the Episcopalians. Oh, wow. They have their own whole, that's a whole different episode. <laughs> This is great. We're getting a Pentecostal perspective, a Lutheran perspective, mm -hmm. and now an Anglican perspective. Yeah. I actually grew up evangelical, but oh, just really? broadly evangelical. It was only maybe in the last 10 years of my or 10 years of my life, 10 years before I joined this church that I was an Anglican. Okay. Well, very cool. So, because um, I remember in your story, you said you knew somebody who was LDS, and mm -hmm. they talked about this scripture that you'd never heard of. Tell Do you want us, me to tell, tell that, that quick story? Yeah. Um, so I was involved in a lawsuit in California, and one of the reporters who was most writing about it, um, he's a member of the church, uh, the LDS church, and he and I had worked together a lot. There, there was a, a bunch of stories that came out, and so he and I were getting to know each other, um, and I kind of had this sense of like, oh, I know he's a church-going guy. I I didn't know anything really much more than that. And at one point, the, the lawsuit involves a church where I grew up that I sued for my sexual abuse, right? So I took them to court and won. Um, that church decided to give a response to the initial stories about this lawsuit in a sermon. And so the pastor chose for his text to use Moses, and his sermon really was awful. It was basically... Well, Moses messed up, and God seems to forgive him. So when leaders mess up, we should just forgive them. That's kind of, and I was angry about it. I was all worked up. The, the plan was um, my reporter friend and I were going to talk later in the week after both of us had listened to this. And so we're on the phone, and I just... So the sermon was recorded or something? So it was recorded. This was pre-COVID, but they still had their sermons online. Okay. Um, so I'm telling um, the reporter, his name is Garth Stapley, by the way, he won some awards for his reporting on my issue. Fantastic, absolutely amazing level reporting, accurate, good, fair, honest. Um, so I'm telling him all the reasons, on and on and on and on and on. And he says, yeah, you know, I, I didn't like that sermon either, but for different reasons. So, oh, like, really, you've got to tell me, tell me why. He says, he says, well, I, I have different scriptures than you. Like, no, you don't. What are you talking about? He says, you know, I, I, I have more information about Moses than you do. And I was riveted. I had to know what he was talking about. Unfortunately, it's the middle of a work day. He's working in a very typical newsroom, the, the open floor plan. All the reporters are sitting around. So he's like... I'm not talking about scripture with you at work. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, you know, that, that's fine. Um, and, and I think as soon as we hung up the phone, I'm immediately texting him of like, okay, to text it to me then. Like, and he sent me a link to the church's website where I read the book of Moses. And that's the first Latter-day scripture I ever read. <laughs> Before the Book of Mormon. Before the Book of Mormon. I had no idea what I was even looking at, but that's what I read first. <laughs> wow. So this is interesting to me because... 
And I don't know, it seems like my experience is most pastors um, get a little, some, at least some sort of knowledge of Mormonism, but it sounds like you didn't get any. Is so, that true? Because you're both an evangelical and an yeah. Anglican. So I grew up in the evangelical church in the 70s and 80s. Um, Godmakers was shown in my church every single year. We were taught as children, sorry, we were taught as children, um, we would, I lived in Modesto, California, that's where I grew up, fantastic place to grow up. We would drive into the Bay Area where the Oakland Temple is near there. And if you've ever seen the Oakland Temple, it's up on a hill, all lit up, you can see that thing from all over the Bay Area. And what our leaders taught us was, don't even look at their temple, because evil things happen in there, and you don't want to get corrupted. So, like, avert your eyes. <laughs> so I got a, I got plenty healthy dose of Mormon equals bad. But I also, I was childhood friends with a family who were members of the church, and I loved them. Their home was good and peaceful to me. Um, I wanted, like, their mom to be my mom. <laughs> um, and so I, I had a, a kind of a soft spot in me where I was always going, these two, these two pieces of evidence don't quite fit together, what my church is telling me and what I see in my friends. In childhood and in my teenagers, I didn't have any ability to sluice out what that meant for me. And after adolescence, after childhood even, those friends were out of my life. I had moved and... By then, I was mostly in evangelical circles. I went to an evangelical university. Um, my my master Viola? in Viola. No, I went to Seattle Pacific because um, I was living in Seattle. Seattle Pacific was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It's a really small school, but it was great for me. Um, my MDiv is from an evangelical divinity school, the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology. Great program, but very evangelical. Um, and I have worked in churches most of my adult life. So my world became really insular in that sense. I can't even remember having a friend in the last 30 years who was a member of the church. I just have been around evangelical and Anglican church people my whole life. Wow. So how did you go from evangelical to Anglican? Um, and were you a pastor in an evangelical church before? So they wouldn't they wouldn't call me a pastor. They would title me director in the churches where I worked just because I was a woman. Um, but I worked in evangelical churches. I was a children's pastor for a long time, did youth ministry, did family ministry, did all kinds of stuff, right? Because evangelicals don't give women the priesthood either. Is that why? Some do and some don't. It's case. It's church by church basis. They okay. make the, evangelicals make the rules for themselves. So churches that want to do, churches that don't, don't. Okay. Um, the evangelical world was, was good to me in some ways. They taught me how to read scripture. They taught me how to love the Bible, and I still do. Um, but the, the, the way evangelical faith kind of gets practiced is it's about an inch deep for most folks. It's really, really broad. It's only about an inch deep. And that just ultimately wasn't very satisfying to me. I actually went to divinity school not with the intention, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get ordained, but with the intention that just said, I need to make sense of what it is that I have been handed in this Bible, in this tradition. I took two years of Greek and Hebrew. I learned homiletics. I learned hermeneutics. I learned philosophy. I learned all this stuff, just in part because that's how my brain worked. And I 
didn't get that kind of stuff in my churches growing up. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, so you, so you got your MDiv mm -hmm. at Seattle Pacific. Mm -hmm. You went back to Modesto and were kind of a children's pastor. No, I, I actually, I lived in Modesto up until the time I was about twenty three, maybe twenty four, and then we moved away. I haven't lived there since. Okay. Um, so, I got. Um, so college happened later in life for me. Um, at age 31 is when I went back to school. After um, you already had your MDiv? Mm -mm. I went, I started at community college oh, okay. at age 31. Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, did that, so essentially three and a half years to get my BA, and MDiv is four years on top of that. And then my graduate degree for counseling is three more years on top of that. Wow. So no, I don't have a doctorate, but I should. <laughs> if I would have been smart, I would have figured that out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so once again, how, how did you go from evangelical to Anglican? Um, it's, the evangelical church just wasn't satisfying anymore. Anglicans are deep thinkers, understand a lot more about nuance and history and philosophy and how to actually understand scripture whereas with the evangelicals you get a lot of just love jesus and it's going to be okay okay so mostly my like intellectual needs led me there okay and so um so how did you become a pastor well i'd been working in churches almost my whole life i i mean the first paycheck i ever got from a church i was 17 um and so a lot of these roles I had had were director roles, which means you're a girl pastor. Um, so when I came to the Anglicans, ordination like, is the entryway into doing any kind of pastoral roles. They have an entirely different theology of what it means to, to be a pastor. And so ordination is required. So there's some testing that happens with that. There's some interviews. You have to have a, a Master in Divinity. Um, which you already had. Which I already had. But honestly, very often, I could sit at a table with 10 Anglican friends with, with two master's degrees, seven years of graduate education, and I would be the least educated person at the table. Wow. So they are hyper-educated. <laughs> um, and the that's just the bar to if you want in on the conversation get or have an MDiv get ordained wow and so so you felt called to do that mm -hmm. did it, loved it they were very 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 good to me and you did that for 10 did that for about years? 10 years um i was happy i had literally no intention of going anywhere and then i read the book of moses so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and and that, conv that converted you right there? Uh, no. You that, didn't even need Moroni's promise? I didn't even Moroni. No. Um, <laughs> I, that did not convert me on the spot. Uh, it was a process. And it, I took lessons for about nine months. Um, and most of the time, it would be me. The two girl missionaries who I wanted to be teaching me, because that was my personal preference, the two elders who were actually the elders assigned to the actual ward where I lived frequently to senior adult missionaries I think they were feeling a little nervous because I had questions and the kids didn't always know what to do with them 
my my friend, the reporter, would join us online. So he was in our lessons on Zoom. Oh, wow. Often somebody from the ward, the Relief Society president, whoever. So there would be like 10 or 12 of us sitting around for my lessons. And we did that for months and months and months and months and months. Yeah. yeah. It, it would take some, some talking to... I kept a notebook and just wrote down every single question I had. And I wasn't going to make a movement until my questions felt answered to me. I also, you know, after I read Moses, I read all the Pearl of Great Price, I read all the Book of Mormon, I read Doctrine and Covenant, I read all of those long before I got baptized. Um, had many, 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 many questions for my reporter friend, who is a saint for taking it, because it was like daily, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this? And the fact that he hasn't unfriended me yet is... is, is only attributed to his patience and goodness, not because I have any restraint whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so polygamy wasn't a big deal to you? You know, I mean, it's a complicated issue. However, yeah. my point of reference on polygamy is the Old Testament. Everybody's a polygamist in the Old Testament. Exactly. Who cares? Right. And so I walked into the, the LDS polygamy situation of like, okay, it's a little bit more recent, but I don't exactly understand why all of you are so upset. I have come to understand and I and I have gotten a nice education. I know I understand why people are upset about it. But I'm not. Okay. That's a, that's also another episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you probably had to ask about well, women in priesthood, right? Women in priesthood, I absolutely. Know, I mean, that had to be a big deal for you, right? The day that I sat in an LDS service and watched the boys serving sacrament is when I had the realization of that boy's 12, maybe 11. I'm a full-grown woman with a completely overeducated adult woman who has all kinds of power and responsibility. And that boy has more than I do in this context. And that took a minute. However, um, if you asked me, do I want women to be ordained? Hard pass. Oh, really? Hard pass. We can talk about that, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that. Okay. That's where I want to go. Because okay. I, I can imagine that would have been incredibly difficult for you. And how, how did you overcome that? Well, I mean, it was difficult. There are, there are different versions of difficult. The initial version of difficult was... I mean, maybe that's prideful or maybe anybody in my position would have felt a little bit about like, wait, what? If I join all of you, I'm losing an awful lot, right? That I have current friends in this church today who are fighting for their lives to get women to be ordained, right? And, and here I am voluntarily giving that up. So the, the personal piece was one part. The, the social piece is another part, though, which a lot of LDS women don't understand what it's like to be an ordained person in another denomination, right? And so my initial forays into that conversation, there was a disconnect for me around, oh, only some people are ordained in, in the evangelical church. You get a handful, four, five, maybe 10 people in a church who are ordained, nobody else is, right? Compared to the LDS church, every eligible man can be. Right? So presumably, if women were ordained, every eligible woman would be, presumably. And, and that's a different setup. And how does that end up actually playing out? I don't know. But 
in the evangelical world where women are ordained, even in the churches that fully 100% accept and support them, they face incredible, incredible backlash. Sexist, awful, awful comments from their own congregations because of their gender. That is no cakewalk for any of them. The pushback is intense. So part, part of why that was easy for me to overcome was I know what's on the other side of that, at least the evangelical version of it, and I am eager to sign up for that again, right? Um, the theological piece I got through by saying, I mean, it's, it's not a super sophisticated way to think about it, but the, like, okay, if this is true, and then this is true, and then this is true, I can understand how not ordaining women is true, if you don't have all these other things before it, it doesn't make sense. But in this larger context, it makes sense. I can put aside my own pride. I can put aside the, the social piece, whatever. And it becomes okay for me. But it was a struggle. I'll also say this. You, not all of them. And if this, if this doesn't apply to you women, then it doesn't apply to you. But in our church, in our LDS church, one thing I have noticed is more than I would expect women who say, I'm so mad women don't have the priesthood. I'm so mad I don't get to lead. When is all of this going to change? And it is baffling to me. Because you don't, you don't get out of the confines of a system <laughs> by necessarily getting the system to change for you, right? Like that's a woman who's saying, I'm so mad at those mean men that aren't giving me permission. I'm just going to sit here and wait for them to give me permission. Like, do I seem like a woman who is struggling to get her voice heard in this church? I, I don't. Do I seem like a woman who is struggling to not lead in, in difficult areas? No, I do not. I feel completely completely free to do whatever I need to do. What women can fall into, you know, our, our, our culture has done a really good job about talking about toxic masculinity, this sort of over-aggressive, it has to be my way and nobody else can be right kind of, and we've done a really, really good job of identifying that. What we've done a less good job at is identifying the female version of that, which is not an over-aggressive, I have to have my way. It's an over-passive. I have to sit back and wait to be given permission to lead. I have to wait to be given an official title to lead. Because there seems to be this thought of, if I'm given an official position, if I'm given an official title, and then I try to lead, I'm more guaranteed to be successful. I'm more guaranteed to not be criticized. I'm more guaranteed to just be universally loved. That's not what leadership's about. You want to stick your neck out, then stick your neck out. But you're going to take your lumps, too. Um, and it, it is harder for women who are caught up in a, in a toxic femininity. Not all women, not most women. If this doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to you. But that's one of the problems I see. Like, women complaining they can't lead. Well, I'm not sitting around complaining I can't lead. You just lead? I just lead. <laughs> There's plenty of evidence of me doing that and of being criticized for it and of sometimes being wrong, right? And of getting things wrong and things I wish I had said differently, blah, 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 right? 
that's the risk that comes with it. What are you going to do? Well, it's funny because my experience, um, I have a couple of sisters, mm -hmm. and both of them have said, I don't, I don't want the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and it's funny to look at the community of Christ. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know how familiar you are I with am. them. You know, in 1984, they allowed women to be ordained, yep. but they don't allow every man to be ordained yeah. either. Um, they're, they've, they're, that's not how they function, mm -hmm. you know. They're a weird hybrid. Yeah. And so, um, you know, a third of their first presidency are female. A third mm -hmm. of their apostles are female. Mm -hmm. um, they have patriarchs and matriarchs. Mm. And... Um, is, is that a more appealing model to you? Is that, is that more like the evangelical model you're used to? It is more like the evangelical model I'm used to. It is not a more appealing model to me. There's a Community of Christ congregation in Seattle. It's actually not far from where I live. I've been aware of it since I was investigating the church. It, I, I have never given serious emotional consideration to joining with them. I think... I mean, maybe there are ways in which I would align with them better, um, but that's not I, that's not who my people are. I mean, I know I know one of the things that they say is um, they don't like that every man gets ordained just mm -hmm. you know at the drop of the hat, sure. um, and that we there should be a little bit more discernment. And and for those women who don't want to lead, mm -hmm. they shouldn't lead. Yeah. And for those men who don't want to lead, they shouldn't lead. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, very different from LDS. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, to me, it's kind of interesting because it, it, it does allow people like my sisters to mm -hmm. to be, well, I, I don't want to lead. I don't want to yeah. be the bishop. I don't want to, you know, I'm fine with being a Relief Society president or Young Women's president or whatever. Um, and so it, it's more accommodating in that mm -hmm. way. Uh, and, I, and I do think the... Uh, well, since Kate Kelly got excommunicated, mm -hmm. the, the ordained women cr yeah. crowd has gotten a lot quieter. Sure. Um, they're still there. Mm -hmm. um, the website's still up. They're, they're still trying to promote it, but they're not trying to be as confrontational, confrontational as, as Kate was. Yeah. Um, and so there are some of these militant feminists, I guess, but mm -hmm. I don't think they're representative of all women, mm -hmm. of all Mormon women. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the ones I go to church with, I mean, I don't, I don't talk a lot about this. I don't, I don't talk at all about this at church. I only talk about people like you. Um, don't, but, don't do that. <laughs> but I would suspect that uh, if, if there were a revelation like 1984 mm -hmm. with the Community of Christ, Mormon women would probably go along with it. They're, they go along to get along. You yeah. know, they're not seeking this out. Um, some are, but I think mm -hmm. they're a minority. Yeah. Um, I think there are so many opportunities for leadership in areas I am interested in. It is hard for me to imagine that other women can't figure out ways to lead in the areas they are interested in. I, I understand that I bring some strengths to the table, right? I bring education, I bring some of these other things. And in the distribution, maybe I'm in the tails, right? right? However... I've been in this church for three and a half years. Do, do I seem like I'm struggling to lead? <laughs> no. You've I been on not. several podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been on Leading Saints at least twice. Mm -hmm. What other podcasts? You've been on, you've been on Mormon Land, I believe. 
Oh yeah, I did Mormon Land. Um, after I gave a fair talk two years ago, and um, they interviewed me about that. I can never remember all the ones. That, I mean, I've done a bunch. There's people who are probably like, "Oh, this lady again," <laughs> and then there are other people who are like, "Who is Jennifer Roach?" Ew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it must have been hard because you had to you had to change career path, right? You go from being a pastor to not not as hard as you might expect. Okay. Because by the time I was already, like before I ever even read the Book of Mormon, I had credentials in both, right? And so I was actively working in churches, but I also had a therapy practice, right? Like I, and, and I had worked full-time as a therapist before that. So it's not like I had to quit my job and then all of a sudden go and get retrained in some other field. I had both masters to draw off of. And um, I'm not the sole income earner for my family, so that also makes it easier. I know folks who the faith transition question is completely out of the question. They're like, well, it might be interesting to find out about your church, but please don't tell me because if I'm interested, I can't do anything about it because I've got five kids and I'm the only one in our family who earns income and I'm a pastor, so I ain't changing, right? And that was not my path. Okay. So it was a little bit smoother mm-hmm. because you could go into counseling, which you've already been doing. Correct. Yeah, easy. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so talk a little bit more about um, patriarchy. Is, is this a problem in, in the LDS church? Um, the, the, let me try and use the language of... The, the feminist world that would be talking about the patriarchy, right? Okay. If the patriarchy is a problem, or to the degree that it is a problem, it is also a problem to sit and say, well, I demand that the patriarchy give me permission or endorsement to, to lead. Like, why not subvert the system in a sense, lead where you want to lead? Maybe you don't have a title. Maybe you don't have an official position. And I understand the arguments for why those are also important to have. I'm not pretending like I don't understand those. Um, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I talk with a lot of different Mormon mm-hmm. schismatic groups. Sure. And, um, you know, David Fairman, he's got the Church of Jesus Christ and Christian Fellowship. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an internet church. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his selling points is you don't have to leave your church to join my church. <laughs> and so he has told me, mm-hmm. and I don't know who these people are, mm-hmm. but he has told me that there have been women in the LDS church mm-hmm. that wanted priesthood, and he's given them what he calls the Magdalene priesthood, which is oh, similar to the Melchizedek priesthood, sure. so that they can ordain other women or mm-hmm. lay hands on the sick. Sure. You know, and I've heard, you know, I've been to Sunstone, mm-hmm. I've heard about women who. Um, have laid hands on the sick. Mm-hmm. Now that used to be a practice up until the 1950s, Correct. and then the church said, "No, if there are elders around, you should call yeah. for elders." Um, would it be okay for a woman like this to say, "Well, you know, I've been listening to Margaret Toscano and she and Michael Quinn, and mm-hmm. they say, due to my endowment." Mm-hmm. Although you were at the fair conference a few days ago. I was. There was a woman who said, due to baptism, mm. that women yeah. have priesthood and can, and, and at the time, lay mm-hmm. hands on the sick. Now, we don't, the prophet doesn't, hasn't endorsed that today. Yeah. But would it be okay for a woman in that situation to say, 
hey, by virtue of my endowment, let, let's at least go there, I can lay hands on the stick. Can she lay hands on the sick and pray to Heavenly Father to heal them? Absolutely. Can she pray for her own children? Absolutely. Is that the same thing that's what, what is purported to be happening when an elder does that? No. Does that mean it's meaningless and pointless and that praying to God shouldn't matter? Of course not. I, I, in our church, there are women who have put their hands on me and prayed for me, but nobody pretended it was a blessing, right? So the idea that, like, oh, women are barred from this kind of care of each other, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going around pretending that it, it is what it isn't. Oh, now I have some kind of priesthood authority here to do this. It's a... Um, brother and sister in Christ and we all are praying to our Heavenly Father kind of authority, I'm not going to go as far as to say that's identical to I already have the priesthood. I think that's a, I think that's a ridiculous argument. Um, but if I had a friend and she was pregnant, yeah, I'm going to put my hand on her belly and pray for her. And I hope the elders don't put their hand on her belly, right? Like... Yes, yes, I am. Am I blessing her? Am I acting in any priesthood role there? No. You're just doing it as faith? Just doing it as faith. I mean, if people have a problem with, with that, it, that's nonsensical to me. What, what, is the, what is the problem with one woman praying for another woman? I mean, it's obviously, like, it's very, very conservative people who might have the problem with that. On the other side are people who would say, oh, like, you actually, you're acting in function as priesthood right here, you might as well name it that. Well, no, I'm not. Well, you know, the other issue comes up um, is, like, if a woman has to confess a sin to a male bishop, mm-hmm. um, that can be very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the question is, why couldn't she confess those sins to a female bishop? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, a male is going to react, ask different questions, probably more invasive questions, than, than, a, than a female. Um, and so why should a woman have to submit to a male authority in, the, in those situations? Yeah, so um, I, this comes up with me with clients quite a bit, actually. Um, probably half my clients are members of the church. And people will talk about something in therapy that ultimately becomes an issue they want to turn away from um, and are struggling to do so. I, as their therapist, am more than happy to talk with them. We can figure out what the blocks are to changing the behavior. We can figure out strategies for behavior change. We can figure it out philosophically. We can do all these things. But I can't do what their bishop can do. If we had female bishops to confess something to, that's, that the same would be true. I can't do what your female bishop does. We don't have that. I'm certainly not advocating for that. And so your bishop brings something to the table that your therapist doesn't. The, the Relief Society president doesn't. Um, that's how the system is set up. That is how it is. I'm okay with that. I know plenty of people who aren't, and I'm okay with them not being okay with it. Right? Like, I'm not, I don't judge them. Like, I absolutely am fascinated by their perspective. I, at the end of the day, I just don't share it. Well, and it's interesting because, you, you know, you kind of touched on this, and, and I, I would love you to, to share as much as you're comfortable with. Because um, you, you mentioned earlier that you were involved in a, 
sex abuse lawsuit mm -hmm. with yeah. with a Baptist pastor. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Um, and there's the whole issue with Sam Young. Mm -hmm. You know, kids shouldn't be talking yeah. to the bishop without a parent present or whatever, yeah. which has changed. Yep, it has. Um, and so, uh, you know, can you can you talk about this issue? Is it okay for a woman to be alone with a bishop and mm. confess sexual sins? And you know, is that is that a way for grooming to happen? <sighs> uh, well, first, let me refer back to um, two years ago. I gave a fair talk on this. Bishops um, and, and teenagers, it didn't focus on adults, but bishops and teenagers. So if you want the longer answer, that's a 45-minute talk. Um, it, if the question is, is that a way potentially for bishops to, to groom people? Of course. However, here, here's... I'm going to change and talk about teenagers just because this is where I've done the research more. Um, and you've had unfortunate personal experience with right? this as well. Um, adults in every other church that exists are also talking with teenagers about sex. There is no church <laughs> where teenagers don't need to talk about this as a subject. How does sexuality fit in with my faith? That is an appropriate developmental task for them to figure out, right? What happens in a lot of churches, I'm going to talk mostly about evangelicals, is that the youth leaders, who sometimes are trained, usually there's one trained person and then a, a whole bunch of volunteers, right? So they're not any more trained than LDS people are. Um, the volunteers will, will pull a kid aside. Hey, like, gosh, let's talk about what's going on with you and your boyfriend, or let's talk about what's going on, you know, whatever, with your porn viewing. They have those conversations with kids on the regular without informing the parents. Parents never know about those conversations. In our church, the bishop meets with the kid. The parents certainly knows that that's happening. It's probably scheduled. <laughs> Right. Yeah. There is no, hey, let me pull you aside for a little private conversation. Um, and oh, by the way, I'm never going to tell your parents we discussed graphically your sex life. So is there danger there? Of course there's danger there. It's better than it. It's safer than it could be. No, it's safer than in other places. It's not as bad as it could be. There's no there is no risk free way to live in the world. What are you going to do, lock kids in their homes? They're actually more in danger in their homes when it comes to abuse. It's family, it's family members and close friends of the family that abuse most often, right? You want to kick, lock kids out of their homes and just keep them at school 24-7? Well, there's your second biggest source of, of sexual abuse is school teachers. So we send our kids to school. We let children live in our home. Those are high-risk activities for children. But there is no way to live in the world without risk. So do you support the new guidelines where a parent can be in, I, oh, in there? Absolutely, yeah. right? If the kid wants them in there, if the kid wanted a, their youth, their, their young woman's leader in there with them, that's allowed. If the kid wants a friend with them, that's allowed. Of course, whatever's going to make that kid feel more comfortable. However, what I don't love is when parents insist that they must be in there and the kid disagrees, there is a role to be played. Because there could be 
yeah. abuse in the home. Yeah, because that kid might need to confess something that their parents are, I guess that's not confessing, might need to reveal something their parents are doing. They also might need to reveal some activity that they themselves are involved in that their parents don't know about yet, right? Like the, the role that kind of the, the aunt or uncle figure plays in the church of like, I'm not your parents, like I'm not going to ground you if you reveal something to me. We can talk about it and we can figure out how to go talk to your parents together. That is an important role, right? So if the kid wants it, 100%. I'm suspicious if it's dad that wants, to be that wants it, yeah. To make and I, sure and I'm sorry nothing, to say that, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, nothing gets said to nothing get gets him in trouble or whatever. <laughs> Have you had these, especially when you were a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I should use the word, expl- explicit sexual conversations with young boys? Um, let me think. As a pastor, not likely. How the, how the evangelical church is set up is usually there's one person who has something like the title youth director or youth pastor but they alone are not taking care of the youth. They've got a whole crew of volunteers underneath them, men and women. And for the most part, the men are going to be having conversations with that with the boys. I don't think I ever have in my role as a pastor, certainly as a therapist, but that's different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, this all kind of, I think this is kind of leading into this mm-hmm. AP story. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the helpline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a big thing out here. There's a terrible story in Arizona mm-hmm. where a father was sexually abusing his daughter, mm-hmm. um, and it went on for at least seven years. It's horrific. It's the worst case I've ever heard of in my entire life. And so um, there's there's this helpline that bishops are supposed to call. Now, I mm-hmm. think it, the way the church frames it is, you know, we have a lay clergy these are marketing majors and construction managers yeah. and you know they're they're not psychologists like you generally speaking i'm not a psychologist i'm a therapist therapist psychologist okay. is a, a phd or psyche level okay they're not therapists like you that are that are used to dealing with these sort of, of mm-hmm. things and um and so in theory it sounds like hey let me call the church mm-hmm. They'll help me with this, and it sounds like a great idea. Yeah. But the problem, at least in this Arizona case, mm-hmm. is it looks like the church said, don't call authorities. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, there's no, well, a little bit of a gray area in Arizona about mm-hmm. whether you can call uh, authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but this bishop was instructed not to call the authorities. Y- it's unclear if he was instructed not to call or that it was up to him if he called. I have not gotten clarity on that, and I don't think that there's a document that reveals. I'd love to know if there is. Did they tell him, do not call, or did they tell him, there's an out and you can take it if you want? I don't know. I'm going to look up something please, here in a second. Please, please but, do. I would love to see it. But uh, at any rate, so the, the, the criticism is... Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a clergy exemption in some states. Uh, twenty-eight states, or something. Oh, I thought was it was a clergy exemption in twenty-eight states? Mm-hmm. I thought so, it was twenty-eight where they were mandatory reporters. Oh, I could have it backwards. There are many states where there's a clergy exemption. Like that, Arizona is not the only ones. Okay. 
Well, and I, because I, I heard you mention this on the, on the Oregon case, which is another case, and I kind of want to talk about that. Because my understanding is Oregon is a mandatory reporting state. Mm -hmm. And so the bishop did what he was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He reported the sexual abuse. The wife of the husband who went to jail mm -hmm. for sexual abuse is suing, suing the church. Suing the church. <laughs> Because the church reported, but the church was following the law in that case. Yeah. So, I, well, I don't think the case has been settled yet. I don't think it has either. I tried to find an update on it and just couldn't. Yeah, I looked for it last mm -hmm. night too. And so, I don't, I don't think this woman has much of a leg to stand on personally. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It wasn't thrown out. I'm not a lawyer either, but it wasn't thrown out. So, because um, so, I know that the question is, in some states... You're a mandatory reporter, and you mm -hmm. call, and, and then it sounds like the Oregon bishop did the right yeah. thing. In Arizona, it sounds like it's a little bit of a gray area. You can or cannot. Mm -hmm. From what I've read, it sounds like the church said, do not report this. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, from the church point of view, we don't want to have splashed in the newspaper, oh, Mormon accused of sexual abusing his daughter. It sounds like the church is, is, is scared of bad publicity instead of... Hey, Bishop in Arizona, mm -hmm. go call the police and tell them what's going on. Because this went on for seven years. Yeah. And I don't want to say, you know, and the church is defending this, that the bishop did nothing wrong because he mm -hmm. followed the helpline. Like in a very technical sense, he did nothing wrong. But morally, I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're, the church yeah. is not about legally. You know, we, we're not supposed to take alcohol and yeah. tobacco which are perfectly legal things to yeah. do in, in America, but morally in the LDS church, they're, they're not supposed to do that. So why in the world would it be, you know, and I, I realize these are lawyers and they have, they have mm -hmm. a lawyer thing, but from a moral point of view, mm -hmm. why, why, aren't, why isn't the helpline telling this bishop in Arizona, get the police in here now? Um, let me be very, very clear up front. Those bishops should have called full stop. However, for some reason it made sense for them not to. Most likely the helpline said not to. I, don't you think? Well, that, that's one very possible, very probable piece of this. Let me, let me actually back up a little bit. There are folks that want to say the bishop should have called. There's nothing else to talk about here. And that's fine. Like, that's, a, that's an opinion. You, you can hold that opinion. Some people kind of go the next step into interpretation. The bishop shouldn't call. They didn't. This is proof. This is evidence that the church is evil. Okay, you can, you can do that too. But you also can take the same facts. The bishop should have called and they didn't. And instead of saying, well, the church is evil, say, okay, let's get curious about what are the factors involved. Is, the helpline's one of them. Right, but there are also is some lack of clarity of what exactly did they know when, in the in the Arizona paperwork. There are very few times when the bishops are even mentioned. They're not the like center of this, so they get very few mentions. And when they do, it's often with statements of like, Adams revealed that he was abusing his daughter M one. Right. What exactly did he, did he reveal? Because there's a wide variety of behaviors this guy is doing, right? All the way up from raping her and filming it to he filmed her while she was changing without her knowledge. 
right? Even filming her with her knowledge, whatever, right? What along that path did the bishops know and at what point? Like, I'm not trying to defend them by any means. But to say, like, there are more factors at play here um, is just trying to understand what happened so that hopefully we can figure out how to do better. It doesn't seem helpful to say, it looks like the helpline did this, story closed, nothing else to talk about here. I would much rather say, like, okay, there are pieces involved here. One of them, one of them is, um, so in the court paperwork, um, a testimony from a lot of people. One of them is the FBI agent called Jay Allen. And he has a quote. Let me just, I just want to make sure I say it right. This is him talking to the court, repeating what he knows about the mom's meeting with the bishop. He says, during the free talk, that is the wife's conversation with the FBI where she was just allowed to tell her story, she said that there was a time when, during an interview or discussion with her bishop, that she was asked where the line was, how far is too far. And she said, if Paul ever touched any of my children, then I'm going to leave him. So at times, abuse is being disclosed, and at times, we have statements like this, where she is acting like abuse is not going on. She knows perfectly well, even at every juncture along the way that it is. Um, but what is the bishop supposed to know from that? If Paul ever touched any of my children, I would leave him. It is, it is reasonable to see a way that the bishop understood that as this child is not actively being abused. Mom would take the kids and run. The court also says, the judge says, in no other case has he ever seen a woman who had more opportunities to rescue her own children than this woman. Her husband was gone for months at a time for work. She has a very large family who loves her and supports her, who would gladly have evacuated her and hid her from him. She had an entire ward begging her to let them help her. She doesn't do anything. And in fact, she lies continually. She tells the FBI that she has lied about things and then continues to lie about things. I, I am not saying the bishops did the right thing. They should have called. However, it is understandable to see why they were confused. Well, and I, I guess my, my concern, or, or, and, and the concerns expressed by those on <laughs> the Twitterverse. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had time for Twitter. I've read the court documents. I ain't reading Twitter. <laughs> well, the idea is, and maybe I should read a, a, sure. a, quote, a couple quotes here. Uh, Elisa from Wheaton Terrace uh, wrote an article uh, on mm -hmm. August 4th that said, Stop protecting sexual predators. Mm -hmm. And she quotes from the AP article. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to get into the details of, of what the bishop knew or didn't know. Okay. It's more of the helpline. Um, okay. Because um, it says, the article reports that the sealed records say calls to the helpline are answered by social workers or professional counselors who determine whether the information they receive is serious enough to re be referred to an attorney with Curtin McConkie, a Salt Lake City firm that represents the church. But it also says in capital letters that those taking the calls should, quote, 
should never advise a priesthood leader to report abuse. That sounds terrible, right? It's not what the handbook says. But this is what the, um, let's see, the sealed records in the helpline. So, so let me help out a tiny bit here. Those sealed records are not about this Arizona case. No, they're about a West Virginia case, but he's applying that to the, to the Arizona case. Because it seems, doesn't it seem pretty applicable? Like, this probably is what happened sure. in the Arizona that, case? That's how, that's how that reporter made those cases. There's two issues here. One, they're sealed records. I haven't seen them. You haven't seen them. Nobody's seen them. The court officers and participants in that case have seen them, and the reporter has seen them. Is he reporting that correctly? I don't know. He, I have incredible respect for that reporter. He, he, there is no one better on this topic than him, right? So I'm criticizing him by any means. The... The, the issue that I have is you can't pull information out of one case and always automatically apply it to the next case. Is that applicable here? I don't know. Maybe. It's one of the pieces of the pie that needs to be looked at. Okay. So anyway, um, it continues mm-hmm. on. Counsel from, of this nature should only come from legal counsel. Continues on, two church practices identified in the sealed records work together to ensure that the contents of all helplines calls remain confidential. First, all records of calls to the helpline are routinely destroyed. I mean, that sounds like destroying evidence. Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Um, when was that the policy of the helpline? When, when are these calls from? What year is this Arizona case even talking about? We have no idea. Well, it says they're routinely destroyed. So it, was, it does say earlier that it was set up in 1995. So this, so this West Virginia case, is it an abuse case that happened in 1995 and those were the early policies of the helpline? Or was this a 2001 case and the policies, are, that that's still the policy? Is this an old case and it's changed? We don't know any of that. So do I love the thought of like the evidence get destroyed at the end of the day? No, I think that's terrible. I think that should change. Is that their current policy? I don't know. Why would it change unless there were public pressure to change it? Well, things change all the time without public pressure to change them. It doesn't seem like the church changes all all the times without public (laughs) pressure. Um, I don't know. Okay. I, I'm just saying it's, a, it's, a, it's an open question on the table. That's not defending abuse. That's not defending this dude, right? Like, that's just, yeah. like, this is a reasonable question. Well, and this is, this is a question that, that, you know, I mean, that, as you mentioned earlier, this guy, this reporter is the same one who uncovered the He's Catholic extraordinary. abuse scandals. Yes, top-notch. So we probably wouldn't question him on, on those issues. Um, so it seems reasonable that he's probably on the right side of the issue here. Except, except for that he needed those West Virginia documents to make a connection that you don't, do not see that connection in the Arizona documents. There's just not enough information about the helpline in them for him to have got where he gets. Mm-hmm. And so he's reaching back to these, these West Virginia documents... So I, I love a good document leak, yeah. right? I would love to see those documents. But are they describing the helpline as it exists today 
or well, they're, they're, they're years certainly ago. describing. Do we know when this West Virginia case was? I That's the know. question. Literally, no okay. one knows. Okay. Well, at least at this point in the West Virginia case, and you know, everything was sealed, mm-hmm. so it doesn't seem like the church had a lot of incentive to change their practices. I mean, it continues on. The notes are, are destroyed by the end of every day. Mm-hmm. Like every day, we destroy our notes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The church's director of family services uh, said Roger Van Komen, the church's director of family services, in a, an affidavit included in the sealed records. Second, church officials say that all calls referred to Curtin McConkey lawyers are covered by attorney client privilege mm-hmm. and remain out of reach of prosecutors and victims' attorneys. Mm-hmm. The church has always regarded these communications with it, between its lawyers and local leaders as attorney pri- client privilege said Paul Ridding, the director of risk management. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, why is this in risk management and not in family services? Well, because you don't want, you don't want a therapist answering the phone. <laughs> do you know the McMartin preschool case? I do, but let's tell, for those people who don't know, tell us that story. So Mr. and Mrs. McMartin have a preschool in their home. It's... When it's first revealed, it's considered the most horrific child abuse case that exists. All these kids are confessing massively incredible, terrible sexual abuse. But what had happened was the children were interviewed by social workers. Social workers are not forensically trained in the collection of evidence or how to collect evidence, especially from a child, without leading them and that is what happened in these cases there's still you can still go online and see the videos of the the social worker interviewing the the child and you can look now and be like oh yeah i see how her holding up a doll with anatomical correct parts and saying to a two-year-old show me show me what happened and he yanks on the doll like well i i understand how the social worker got there but that's not how you forensically interview a child Right. right so the kids give really, really bad information because it got collected in a really, really bad way. Therapists and, and, and social workers have their, their role. You want an attorney answering that phone call for the protection of those victims because those initial disclosures of what actually happened, whether they're coming from the victim themselves or, or a close confidant like a bishop, those are incredibly important, need to not be corrupted, need to be collected in a certain way. I'm not trained to do any of that. Neither are any of my therapist peers. So is there a time and a place for, for a therapist in this helpline situation? Absolutely. But not answering the phone at first. Well, the issue is, you know, supposedly this guy confessed to the bishop that he was sexually abusing his daughter. It sounds like, and I, and I don't know, so I can't say mm-hmm. this for, for sure, but it sounds like the, church, the, the helpline said, don't contact authorities, and this continued to go on mm-hmm. for seven more years mm-hmm. through another bishop um, so, so technically, and it goes on. Child. Yeah. So technically, it goes on for three years um, between Bishop One and Bishop Two. There's a three-year span, and he's excommunicated after three years. Abuse goes on for four more years, which is horrific. And yes, we bear some responsibility in that. But he he was not in the church for seven years. He was he was excommunicated after three years. But most people are going to say, "Who cares?" Sure. I mean, I guess in the eternal scheme of things. That's a big deal, but 
kids still got abused. The kids it's, got it's abused for three more years. Yeah, they did. That 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 child that that person could have been in jail. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he since he since committed suicide. Yeah. So so maybe he would have committed suicide. We bear res- we bear responsibility for that. We our church our church our church has made those girls' lives harder. Whatever settlement they get, they deserve every single cent. M1 is quoted in the AP article as saying how much she hates Mormons and they're the worst people in the world. She's absolutely allowed to say that, and we should be humble enough to say we are going to listen to you. That's, that's what people are so upset about, is yeah. the church is more worried about its reputation than this poor little girl. So, so here, here's the part that I find really frustrating with that, is the bishops didn't call, and they should have. But they, they were probably directed not to call. So, so it, and they were probably directed not to call. Like, let's even go to there. Yeah, that's the systemic issue that, that people have an issue with. The, the interpretation, though, that says the church was worried about the publicity and didn't want, oh, Mormon dad is abusing his Mormon kids, that's an interpretation. Is that the, the motive of what was going what on? What else would it be? This, was a, this is an incredibly complicated situation. Many people involved in this case know that something is odd. They know enough to call, and none of them call either. This isn't um, Mormon Bishop is the only guy in this family's life that knows what's going on, right? Um, there's a woman, um, she is a Border Patrol agent. She also attends the church. She's the children's Sunday school teacher, and she's the visiting teacher for the mom. Um, she's in their home enough to know that something is wrong here. Something is wrong with these children. And when dad comes home from being out of town for a time, the kids fall apart, right? That alone, in my profession, certainly in hers, is enough to call. She didn't call. But she didn't call the helpline to say, should I call the police on them? And the church told her, no, you didn't. She didn't call because there were a lot of factors at play. Here is one of them that I think has not been well talked about, and it's really sad. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking. The mom in this family, she's very mentally ill. She's incredibly mentally ill. Her brother testifies that she has an entirely flat emotional life so that she has the same emotions at the birth of her child as she does at the molestation of her child. That's not normal. There's a lot that is is broken in her psyche. She had gone through her own abuse. He, the husband, is certainly abusing her. He tells her week one of being married, you have sex with me when I want or I rape you, right? And she's been in this marriage for quite some time by then. So it is understandable, but mom changes her story. They're being abused. No, they're not being abused. They're fine. I actually can manage it because I have taken care of the situation and everything is fine. Here's what she tells the FBI agent and her bishop at some point. I manage this by having rules. The children, especially the girls, are not allowed to be alone with their father. The girls are not allowed to sit on his lap. She changes it later to the boys and the girls are not allowed to sit on his lap. I want to, I want to be careful how I say this. She has, she's on the autism spectrum. The vast majority of people who have autism, it does not lead them to enable the abuse of their children, right? I'm not saying that. However, the version of autism that she has has this hyper-control element to it. And she has a very real belief 
it's, it's wrong, but it's a very real belief in her mind that if I can make the right rules, all of this will stop and get, to, get taken care of. She destroys one of her husband's phones that he uses for recording all this at one point. If I destroy the phone, then it stops. Well, that's... Any, just a new phone. Any, right? Any adult understands that's ridiculous. You are in magical thinking. You are not in the world of reality right now if that's what you think is going on. It, and that's where she was. It takes even her, ther- her therapist is interviewed by the court. It takes her therapist months and months and months to realize we're not just looking at anxiety and depression here. Something else is going on, right? How is the bishop supposed to figure out there's a mental health case here that is really complicating what she's able to tell us? Well, I mean, it's not a defense. To me, going back yeah. to, the, to the confession, when the, mm-hmm. when the man confessed to the bishop, End of the story. All these other things that happen after the fact don't matter. Do you know what he confessed? Do you know what his actual words were? What was it? I don't know. It's not in any of the court paperwork. He did, there's no way to know. Did he say, I am actively filming my daughter while I'm actively raping her? Or did he say, gosh, every once in a while I peek around the corner while she's getting changed? Both of those things he did. We don't know what he confessed. I would love to know. Well, even if he's spying on his daughter, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a, a call to the police? Um, it, it would be. The, the outcome, obviously, is going to be quite a bit different. Right. Um, one of the problems you see in this family, which, frankly, you see in a lot of abuse situations. I deal with this as a therapist. Someone will tell me such and such is happening. Okay, we need to make a CPS call. You call CBS, you tell them all this stuff. Well, they go and interview that person, and it is very common. It's the expected case that abuse victims get scared and they change their stories, right? So I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say, oh, my therapist, she's a liar. I never said that, right? And it's understandable why they do that, right? Well, that you see this mom doing that. Well, even Elizabeth Smart, you know, yeah. she had opportunities to escape. And they're in survival mode. So I don't want to blame any woman for any way they react to these because none of us have been in that situation. And unless you're Elizabeth Smart and Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. or unless you're Jennifer Roach because you know, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you're in survival mode. She lied to the police. Repeatedly. And then she tells them I'm lying and then she keeps lying. I'm not blaming her in any sense. However, it makes it hard to prosecute. It makes it, this case, you start looking in the court documents and absolutely nothing is as it appears, at least as seen through her lens or the lens of anyone who's repeating what she said. Because it's this and then no, actually it's this and then no, actually it's this. Here's an example. Um, What did he get um, excommunicated for? Don't know. Um, the assumption is for the abuse of his children, right? Mm-hmm. What she says is he is he's excommunicated for having sex with his mother. Well, whatever. <laughs> that's still a terrible reason. It's still that's still a terrible thing. Did that actually happen? Did she just make that up? Is that she's in in her mind trying to protect her kids or him or something like probably who no maybe he actually did have sex with his mother he was conducting multiple affairs and abusing his own children this is a depraved man maybe that's in the realm of possibility but we don't know we don't know why he got excommunicated the actual reasons because the church won't put it out <laughs> right i would love it if i would love it if that were available and i bet that they would get sued over that if they put that out I'm not, I'm not defending. I'm not an apologist for abuse. The bishop should have called. 
we all wouldn't be here if they had. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just the thing is it just seems like, you know, and maybe this is a stereotype, but the, the church can fix this stereotype, I think, mm -hmm. by saying, by putting in the handbook, because it seems like you said there were some states where they were not supposed to. So, so this gets a little, I wish I would have said this clearer. I said this to Kurt, and I've said this in a couple of other places, where I think I said it in a way that made it seem like some states have it so that you cannot. Yeah, that's what You're legally like. barred. For, and that's not true. That, that's not, I don't know if any, if someone knows of a state, I'd love to know. Um, but there are states where... A, there are 46 states where it's either mandatory or optional to report correct. for clergy. Yeah, and I think the remaining states don't have a, you may, you will, will legally prosecute you if you report, right? right? Um, however, the states that have a clergy exception have a clergy exception. Is, was that the wise thing to follow in this case, looking back from everything we know now? No. What did the bishops know? When did they know it? We don't have, there is no... They haven't spoken. I don't imagine that we will hear from them. Um, it's completely unclear in the court paperwork what exactly they knew when, because they're not the focus of it. I would love to know that. It just should be an open question instead of saying, oh my goodness, that bishop knew from day one that this little girl was being raped, and then he just sat on his hands and did nothing for seven years. That's not what happened. Yeah, uh, there's a, some, a, a former bishop on Facebook posted... Um, in my experience, the first two things that were never part of any conversation, the entire call centered around making sure that I, as an ecclesiastical leader, didn't say or do anything that would put the church in legal jeopardy. Now, this is a person who's been a bishop within the last 10 years. Okay. I was told not to talk to law enforcement and that if law enforcement happened to contact me about the situation, I was to say that I was, quote, represented by counsel mm -hmm. and to direct them to the church's law firm. Yeah. I was offered no advice or resources for how to stop the abuse or how to help the victims. When I asked about those things, I was told to talk to my stake president, who was the one who told me to call the church and sell plan. That is a that is a fail that's a failed system. It should okay. not have happened like that. With absolutely no training in this sort of thing whatsoever, I had to figure out on my own mm -hmm. how to get help for various members of the family. It was gut wrenching. Yeah, of course. And so that's what it, you know, this is within the last 10 years, mm -hmm. and, and this is a former bishop. Yeah. Um, I know some bishops have had good experiences, mm -hmm. but even those who, there, there was a Twitter thread about a bishop in Texas who had a good experience mm -hmm. um, and did everything they said and got help for the victims. But in this Arizona case, the bishop condemns that sort of mm -hmm. reasoning. I also not comfortable saying, here, we know exactly what he was told on the help call. We actually don't know that. The church hasn't said and the bishop hasn't said. It's nowhere in the court paperwork, except for there are some secondhand people saying, we think that the helpline told him not to call. It's, it's, here, it's all hearsay. It's not firsthand. I would love to know what actually happened so we could actually deal with what it is. The, I mean, I think the probably the biggest pushback on what I'm saying here is people want to move from the bishop should have called and he didn't, therefore church bad, right? I want to say the bishop didn't call and he should have. Let's look at all the many, many factors here, figure out what exactly happened and went wrong, and let's try and fix it and build a stronger church, right? Because bishop should have called and didn't church bad, that doesn't really change anything.
Well, the people who are doing this are saying if the bishop, the, the Curtin and McConkie need to say, call the police today. Don't I, wait. I wish they would have. And, and that's the systemic change that needs to yeah. happen. Yeah. There are, there are a number of breakdowns in all of the systems that should have served these kids, and that is absolutely the top of the list. But it is not the only one. And when we say, Bishop should have reported he didn't church bad, we stop right there and, and don't, well, don't look at all these other pieces. I don't think people are stopping there. They're saying this needs to be changed, and we need to change, we need to change in, in protecting the victim. The only glances I have given at Twitter have people saying, two bishops molested the same girl. So, so do you? So, do you think people are reading very carefully? No, Twitter is a dumpster fire. Read original documents. Learn how to source documents. Learn how to evaluate a source. Right. Stay off of Twitter. <laughs> if you want, if you want to find out what happening happened, yeah. you're not going to find it on Twitter. Right. Go learn how to read original documents. Right. Well, cool. Well, have we beat this to death? Let me see if there's anything else <laughs> I want to say. Um. Can we talk a little bit about what um, abuse disclosure actually normally looks like for kids? Okay. So, so one of the issues that comes up in, in this whole Arizona case is a lot, a lot, a lot of folks saying, and I think from a pure and good heart, saying, well, I would have noticed the abuse and I would have reported it. See, I don't, I don't agree with that. But I, you know, I, for one thing, I was telling you off camera <laughs> about a situation that I know of where... I was completely unaware of yeah. sexual abuse going on with somebody that I considered a friend. Yeah. And so anybody who wants to play Monday morning quarterback, sorry, when there, you're on the field, it's completely different. There is an incredible amount of that. I had a really good friend who has been a bishop in the past write to me and say, I would have done what the helpline told me to do. Exactly. I right? probably would have too. Right. I think most people would have. Here, here's sort of part two of that. Adults have a belief almost universally, that a kid or teenager who wants to reveal abuse <laughs> is going to make some kind of appointment with you, sit down in your office and say, on November 7th at 2.38 p.m., here's what my dad did to me, and, here's, and it's illegal, and, here, and here's my entire blah, blah, blah. That is not how children or adolescents confess abuse. It is extremely rare. There are some who did. I actually ended up, when I um, very first told about my abuse, I kind of breadcrumbed, I told a male pastor, that was my choice, um, and I kind of breadcrumbed him into it. We had maybe a dozen conversations before I got to the point of saying, here's what happened, right? So when kids confess something, they do it one of two ways. One is they do the breadcrumb method and they'll say something that they know is a little off. They know it's the tiniest little bit of the iceberg, and they want to see what you are going to do, adults. And if you blow past it, they are not trying again with you. Right? If you pick it up and be like, hmm, that's a weird thing to say. What, what, tell me more about that, right? Then maybe you get the privilege of 12 more conversations with them, and then they tell you what happened. Right? That's, that's the standard. What I, what I did is actually a little bit fast. Um, the other way, and this is the vast majority of abuse that's revealed by children or teens, is by accident. The kid says something that an adult can pick up on, and the kid didn't know that what they said just revealed something. Here, here's my best example is... A girl who says something weird to her Sunday school teacher that her dad knows all about her underwear... 
well, gosh, you're 11. What's your dad doing knowing about your underwear? You're a little old for that, right? That's the conversation that comes next, right? Of like, hmm, weird, tell me more. Why does your dad know about your panties, right? But as adults, we're really afraid, especially my heart goes out to, to men, bishops especially, who get put in this situation. A kid drops some little nugget like that in a youth interview a bishop wants nothing more than to just move on to the next question on the list because he doesn't want to be the middle-aged creeper who has to lean forward and go, wait, what? Right? But that's actually what that kid needs. You want to you wanna save kids from abuse? Adults, you need to open your ears in a different way. This kid isn't going to sit down and tell you, here, let me give you the times and dates of all of my abuse and exactly what happened. They're going to say weird stuff. And kids say weird stuff all the time. So you're going to get a lot of false positives that you're going to go down a trail and just realize, oh, that's just something dumb, right? Um, The other piece is this. It is impossible to know what the state of abuse is today, whether in our church or in any other church, and here's why. Um, If abuse happened in childhood or in adolescence, what, what do you think? When is the first age that a person might report that? How young? Mm-hmm. Maybe eight at the earliest. What do you think is average? Probably 20. <laughs> According to Child USA, who does work in this space of um, reporting and, and um, statute of limitations laws, the average age is 51 of first disclosure. 51. Wow. Meaning, a 10-year-old kid who's being abused today, we are not going to know about her abuse for 40 years. So are we doing better? Yes, I hope so as a society. And we can still, there's still stuff we don't know. There's still abuse happening that we don't know about. Um, If adults could learn to listen to kids in a little bit different way, that number could drastically come down from 51 to maybe 21. Right? I'm 51. <laughs> Has the Me Too movement helped with that kind of stuff? That's an think? interesting question, right? Because this statistic is actually pulled, <clears throat> I think, in 2017 or 2018, which is just when the Me Too stuff is beginning, right? So probably, however, um, are we accurately catching that yet? Probably not, because a lot of these cases are too old to report on so people don't go report to the police, right? Like, well, this happened 40 years ago, right? What, are they going to want to hear about it? So it, it's complicated. We, at, as a church, we could do better with the helpline. We could do better around policies. As adults in this church, we could do better in how we talk to kids and teenagers about abuse. Um, we could do better about how we follow little suspicions, right? Can I talk about background reports? Can I talk about background oh, checks? Yeah, go ahead. yeah. So um, this. I, I know you talked about that with Kurt. Yeah. This <laughs> this. So you already, you already know what I'm going to ask you. This man, he not only abused his own kids, he produced child pornography with them. He was consuming child pornography before he ever even had children. There, there's one comment in the in the court paperwork that he potentially had produced something child pornography wise before he even is married to his wife. So he's he's got a, he's had a long career at this. And he's a border patrol agent. 
you, you think the church can do a better background check than, than the border patrol can? That guy submitted to the most intense border or the most intense background check that there is, right? So like, here, here's my example. If you're somebody who's running an after-school tutoring program, and, and Paul Douglas Adams sits down and says, hey, I love kids. I just want to, like, help out. Um, the, the, the director of the tutoring agency is going to say, we take child safety very seriously here. You have to pass a background check first. What's he going to say? He's going to say, sure, totally. Like, yeah, let's fill out the paperwork. And, and two weeks later, that background check is going to come back. He's clean. And she's going to introduce him to kids. And he is the most destructive child abuser that I know of. And she is going to sit back with some assurity that that guy's okay. So, yes, should our church be doing background checks? Probably, because you do catch the, the right. rare person who's already been convicted. I mean, I've heard that, you, you know, if you, found, if you did the, because what do they have, the sexual predator list or whatever mm-hmm. in every yeah. state? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you looked at that, you'd be shocked at how many people are your neighbors. Yeah, abso- absolutely, right? There are people on that list, and we could find them with background checks. That is real. The the, the, the person who says, well, why not just do them anyway? There's no harm in it. The harm actually is that now Miss Director of After School Tutoring thinks Paul Douglas Adams is safe. And she lowers her guard a little bit, right? Could we be doing better as a church around issues like that? Absolutely. So-and-so but is... But it's not foolproof. Right? So so-and-so has taken the, the church, the abuse training that you have to take in the church, all that means is you clicked through some buttons, right? Don't let that lower your guard down. There's a lot of changes that meet. It's not just the helpline here. I, I could list up 20 changes I want to see the church make. Well, serum. So, well I mean, I've just been telling you about all of them, right? Like, there are a lot of changes we can make. Putting the only emphasis on the helpline, I get it. It's on the top of the list. However... You're much more likely. Well, I know some of these people are all for background checks. There's a position going around right now. California just make it. California did. Yeah. Yeah. And so the church in California, they will have to have background checks there. I am not opposed to background checks as long as you understand what a background check is and what it isn't. People seem to think that it's some kind of like magic oracle that tells you (laughs) if this person has ever done something in the privacy of their own home. And it's not. Right. You have to have been not only charged but convicted. Paul Douglas Adams would have passed a background check until the day he died. Until the day he died. What, now, he was the Border Patrol agent? Is no, he's the, he's the father. He commits suicide in jail. Oh. On the day he died, if someone would have background checked him, he, they, he would have come back completely clean. This is the Arizona father is mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Okay. So... It, it, I get it. Yes, we probably should do background checks. That is a change that probably should happen. And I just want to implore, do not let any policy make you feel safer than you should. People want a magic bullet. And background checks or policies like having to do the training or the too deep rule, right? People, people say, oh, well, all of these are going to guarantee we can relax. Well, no, you can't. There is no magic bullet that 100% protects kids. Nobody, nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that either, but it's true. Okay. What, um, what else do you have? Let me you look. Any, any other things besides that? Oh, you know, I mean, the other thing that ha- I think has not been well said is um, there is record in the, in the court 
of the bishops were trying to get the mom to call the police. They were also trying to get the dad to call the police, which he was not going to do that in a million years, right? They were trying to get the mom to do it, and she wouldn't. So there is some understanding from both of them that calling the police is the right thing. What it is that blocked them from doing that, I don't know. We can speculate, but we don't, we don't have that document. If somebody has it, I'd love to see it, but it doesn't exist yet. So the, the, the idea that they just didn't care, I mean, my very short peeks into Twitter are, I can't believe two Mormon men just sat on their heads, hands knowing this girl was actively being raped right at that moment. Like, that's just inflammatory, and that's not what happened here. Right, right. So, I don't know. That's probably more than anyone ever wanted to talk about abuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm sure this is my first episode on abuse that we've ever had. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, it might not be the last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Is there anything else? Nope, I think that's it. All right. Well, it's been so interesting. I, I love hearing. You know, I might have to have you back on. We'll talk about biblical literalism. That sounds like. Oh, fun. there's so many fun things we could talk about. <laughs> someday we'll see. But it's great. You know, there's so many people that wonder how some how a pastor could convert to Mormonism. You know, Jana Reese is another one. Yeah, she has a degree in divinity. Yeah. and she joined. But. Or I, I think more current to this situation is people wonder how can you have your own abuse background know all that you know about this case and stay in the church and, right. and keep faith. And and that is really the the person that I'm interested in is you can navigate these things. I'm doing it. It's hard. You're going to need support. Um, you're going to need a good therapist and a whole bunch of good friends. Um, is that why you went into therapy? Well... It was because of your own abuse? I mean, you know, yeah, like, after a while, you know your way around a therapy room, so <laughs> you might as well get the piece of paper that says you're allowed to do it, so yes. Do you wish we offered better training for our bishops? You know, one of the things that you said, which mm -hmm. I thought was very interesting on mm -hmm. Kurt's podcast, mm -hmm. was, you know, when you're an evangelical, you don't get that much more no. training than a Mormon bishop. Yeah. And not, I was surprised on, to hear that. Yeah, not on abuse issues. Um, you get some... But mostly, people who become pastors in the, in, in the Protestant world broadly, and certainly in the Catholic world, they're, they're bookworms. They're interested in, in learning dead languages. They're more comfortable in the library than in the social hall. Well, what about like marriage counseling? Don't you get some training in that? Because that's a big part of being a pastor as well, right? It, it is, but that's done from a very specific, like... Here's what the, you know, in their case, the Bible, or, or here's what God might want you to do. That's not at all what we mean by, like, what a therapist does. That's not what I do as a therapist, right? They're, they're acting as, let me be the deliverer to you of what God has said about marriage and how you should work at marriage. That's all they're doing. That's what, that's what past biblical counseling is. So, so, yeah, they're doing it. They probably took one class in Div school. So would, would it be a, a couple that's having marriage issues, mm -hmm. and they go to their bishop, pastor, priest, mm -hmm. whatever, 
should that bishop, pastor, priest, whatever, say, you know, I'll give you a few scriptures to read, but really you should go get professional counseling? Should that happen all the time in every church? Depends upon what the issue is, right? Um, bishops in our church, I mean, like if you want to use the keys language, right? Like they hold specific keys. They don't hold the therapy key, right? So they, they, they're going to have to outsource that. And, and I have received plenty of clients from bishops who have been like, hey, I know, I know somebody good. You should go see her. But a person who's in trouble in some way, like without being able to say what is going on in the marriage, they might need a bishop and a therapist. A bishop does things I cannot do. Such as? They're there to help with the repentance process. Therapists are not there to help with the repentance process. They're, they're there to help with confessing sins to God. That is not what therapists do. Therapists use empirically validated methods to help change thoughts and behavior. There's no conceptualization in modern therapy about what sin is. There's none, right? A person sits down and says, I like to have sex with my cat. I don't even know how that, never mind. <laughs> he sits down with me and says, I'd like to have sex with my cat. My, the first words aren't out of my mouth aren't, that's a sin, you need to stop this behavior, right? I'm going to try to understand how he got there, what were the things that made this develop, what's going on that's keeping him stuck there, how to help him move through that, right? None of that is a conceptualization of sin or of forgiveness or of God or of spirituality or of any of those things. That's, that's what a bishop does. And, and cat guy might need the bishop to do that with him. Well, it seems like I've heard stories um, <laughs> where a woman especially went to a bishop mm -hmm. and claimed she was raped. By the bishop or by somebody no, no, else? No, it was by somebody, by somebody else. else. Got it. Okay. And the woman had to go through the repentance process. Yeah, um, yeah ridiculous. Ridiculous. That shouldn't happen. That's number 17 on my list. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'll, you know, if you have a, a bishop who's a psychologist, they're going to react very differently than a bishop who's an insurance agent mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and it seems like there is a little bit of bishop roulette. And so when we talk about the repentance process, could the church, especially in this case mm -hmm. of rape, um, could the helpline better train and say, if a woman comes to you and says she was raped, you don't say, what were you, what were you wearing? Did you enjoy it? You know, these kind of really... <laughs> Please don't ever say that. <laughs> You know, because some of these bishops were like, well, I've got to find out exactly what happened. Were you, were you wearing something inappropriate? Yeah. Were you drunk? Yeah. You know, and so, and, and you know, I mean, there's a case at BYU where, where a girl got drunk and yeah. then got raped. And, and, the, guy and the honor code yep. came yep. after her. Yep. And so shouldn't, shouldn't we do a better job of what, what do we do in those cases? It's a little bit chicken and egg for me. Is that bishops over... They're flowing over their banks, right? They're not staying in their lane. Is that what this is? Or do people in the pews look at the bishop as kind of a low-rent therapist? Can't get in to see a therapist. Everybody's full or it's a lot of money or whatever. I'll go see my bishop. And not that that person is necessarily like telling the bishop, I want you to also be my therapist, but they lead the conversation in a way that that becomes the, the topic, 
It's some of both, I'm sure. Um, if I had my wish, bishops would be extremely clear on the, the gift and the skill and the keys that they bring to the table. Those are valuable and needed in the life of, of members. That is an incredibly important lane that no one else can occupy. Please occupy that lane to the fullest of your ability. But members, please stop asking your bishop to act like your therapist. Go get a real therapist. You might need both. May somebody help you with repentance and somebody to help you with thought patterns or behaviors or whatever. Well, that's nice if you have good insurance, right? <laughs> uh, in the United States and our medical, that's a whole other episode, right? Like, I mean, here's one other story. I've never told this okay. ever. Um, gosh, how old was I? I was 20, 21 years old. I was on my mission. Mm -hmm. I was a district leader. Mm -hmm. Of um, course you were. <laughs> and um, so I had to interview somebody for baptism. And in the White Handbook, one of the questions is, have you ever had an abortion? Mm -hmm. And if they say yes, all it says is, contact the mission president. <laughs> so, so here I am. Let's say I was 21. Oh, I was probably 20 or 21. I don't oh, your poor 21-year-old self. <laughs> I interviewed this woman. Have you had an abortion? And she says yes. And I'm like... What am I supposed to do now? Because yeah. <laughs> there's not a whole lot. There's not the the next sentence is called the mission president. Yeah. Like, am I supposed to just like abruptly end this interview now? And I didn't know what to do, and so yeah. I, as gingerly as I could, kind of asked her. You know, she was a young teenager, sure. and you know, and wasn't ready or whatever. And she was sorry about it. She mm -hmm. wished it never happened. And so. I was like, oh, I don't know if you can get baptized. And then she was like, what? Really? And I was like, I need to call I hope she eventually mission. got baptized. Well, uh, let me finish. And so I called the mission president. Mm -hmm. You know, I told him what happened. He asked me all the same questions that yeah. I happened to ask her. Brilliant. And he said, she can be baptized. And yeah. I was like, Whew. So, <laughs> But I was scared to death. Yeah. Because there's no, I mean, 21 years old. There's no training for this. Right. And, and, and part of me wishes that there were something. And part of me says, absolutely not. You don't put that in the hands of a 19-year-old boy. You tell him to call the grown-up. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to have that conversation with her, right? Like, let's, we're not going to train him how to have conversations about abortion with women. Well, who should be asking the question? Because that's the tip of, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the question you... It still if, is. If that was in my baptism interview. Yeah. yeah. And so... I wish missionaries were trained a tiny bit better on how to eloquently transition into, like, okay, like, hey, we're just going to need to have a little bit more details on that, and I need to loop my mission president in. And I think that's what I did, but I was scared to of death. Of course you were. Of <laughs> course no you idea. were. But I don't want a 19-year-old boy to sit there and decide, does she get to be baptized or doesn't she? Well, and she was really nervous, of I course. remember. And of I was course. like, I just got a call. Did she get baptized? Please she did. Say yes, thank she did. <laughs> yeah. Like, so. in one sense, I understand the, the dilemma of that, but I know a lot of elders and their brains are not yet mature enough to make that call. It's not their job, right? So I'm really glad that that's what the handbook says. Call, call the grown-ups. I, I mean, yeah, but there was no, how do you finesse uh. this? How do you, 
right? Like, what, what if they say yes? Because you know, up to then, everybody had always said no. It was no big deal. A footnote would be very helpful to everyone in that cer- in that circumstance. <laughs> if they say yes, this is how you handle it. And I think I, I did it. I did the best I knew how to. It sounds do. like you did great. And 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 it, it worked out. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean. Ooh. I know, I know. The, the, the whole point to all of that is therapy life and church life are different, right? You might need both. Um, there are things that you can get from therapy that you can't get at church. There, there just are. And there are things that, at church and from your bishop that you can't get from therapy. And those two things need to work together in tandem, not, not checking on each other. Right? They're, they're two different entities. They're working on different goals. Um, but for a therapist to, to maybe be tempted to say, well, gosh, you don't need to talk to your bishop about this. They might. And it might be helpful for their spirit if they did. Right? And for a bishop to say, you don't need a therapist. I can talk you through this. Nope. Stay in your lane. Your lane is important. You're the only one who can be in your lane. Be in it. My lane is therapy. There's billions. There's millions of us. <laughs> right? Do your job because I can't do your job. I just think we could do, the church could do a better job of, you know, especially BYU with honor code, you know, rape is rape and no woman ever deserves, or man. Yeah, that's not an an honor code violation to be raped. (laughs) (laughs) And even if they were drunk, you know, they did something stupid. That's an honor code violation, but getting raped is not. Right, right. So, um, so anyway, I... I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I don't know how to land this talk. And we just keep going and it's going to grow into a million things. All right. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about? Nope, that is it. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have you back for a biblical literal, literalism. Sure. That'd be um, fun, anytime. So, all right. Well, Jennifer Roach, I wanted to say former pastor Jennifer Roach. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being on Gospel Tank. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really great questions. Mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jennifer Roach. Jennifer, thank you for sitting down with me and, and sharing your opinions. And, uh, you know, I think you've got some really good suggestions, and I hope, I hope that we can improve and make society a better place, uh, especially for abuse victims. In our next conversation, I'm excited to have a, uh, an apostle, Locke Mackay from the Community of Christ. Yes, we're going to talk about that new photo with Joseph Smith. But I guess my question is, is there somebody who, you know, very talented that could create a daguerreotype today, put it on 19th century paper and, and make such a forgery? Are you aware of anything like that? Uh, I think that, so daguerreotypes aren't on paper. They're on metal plates. But there are okay. people making daguerreotypes today. So uh, I, would, I would guess that somebody could do that and then would have to figure out how to artificially age it and get it sealed up in an 1840s locket. So I don't know anybody with that expertise, but there might well be somebody out there. But um, I I guess I I just, in this case, I don't know why my grandmother would, (laughs) would have been involved in that. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.